we're now seeing historians making significant use of natural language processing to have AI agents read all of the books from the 19th century at once um, to do the history of the Industrial Revolution. Today's guest is James Hetherington, the director of the Advanced Research Computing Centre at UCL. And in this conversation, we talk about the craftsperson and the scholar and our ability to take meaningful, trustworthy outcomes out of vast data sets. This is Tech Talks, your twice-weekly technology podcast with myself, David Savage, powered by the Harvey Nash Group, where we talk to leaders from across the industry and bring you some technology news. Joining me today, uh, I've got a quiche. Quiche, we're not going to mention football, don't worry. Uh, do you know what? I've, I've, we were talking about, we were talking for about five minutes before this and before we hit record, and I didn't mention it on purpose. And I was like, oh, it's, it's going to be nice. It's not, moving it's, on, moving yeah, on, moving on. Moving on. on. <laughs> we, cricket, though, we can talk about cricket. We yeah. can talk about that all day. You know what I mean? Pakistan so, and England. Oh, beautiful! My two, my two, my, my two teams. You know, absolute annihilation. Lovely. Owen Morgan can't bat anymore, but genius. Yeah. yeah. Genius. Right. Anyway. On more, on more, on trend for a, for a podcast of, of technology startups and so on. Sonia Barlow, friend of the podcast, who's often been on, has got a book out called Ooh. "Unprepared to Entrepreneur." Uh, the second chapter. There's a case study. The case study is me. Yeah, I did. See, I, I did see. Was it on your social media? You put that on. You're I, like, I uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, did see I don't think we should plug the second chapter too much. It might put people off. But the rest of it is excellent. And Sonia Barlow is also a, pre- a previous Rising Star uh, Award recipient for the Tech Women 100 Awards, for which I was a judge this year. It's all tying in beautifully. Uh, and the shortlist was announced today for the 2021 Awards. Um, the level of traffic going to that website to check the shortlist means that you actually, I had to wait for it for, for over two minutes to get onto the website. There was a, there was a queue to stop traffic overloading the website. Which is is pretty cool, and that's that's today. So this is this is Monday, yeah. the twenty fifth. By the time this goes out, twenty sixth. If you if you head to that to to the Tech Women One Hundred Awards, you'll be able to see the shortlist for the Tech Women One Hundred. There are some amazing individuals on there. We're going to talk about that a little bit more uh, later in the show. But right now, we've got the last of our trilogy from UCL, uh, where we're going to be talking about. ARC, the Advanced Research, Re- Research? The Advanced Research Computer Centre, uh, and its uh, head, James. So we'll go over to that interview, and we'll come back with some commentary on it afterwards. Joining me on today's chat, we've got James. Thanks for making some time. You're the director of UCL's Advanced Research Computer Centre, otherwise known as ARC. That's right. Which could sound like it's some kind of sinister organisation in a computer game, but isn't. It's doing some wonderful things. <laughs> Um, um, no, uh, what is ARC on a serious note? What is it doing? Okay, great. So we're a new centre. We've existed since the beginning of August. We are the place in UCL where we look after the platforms and systems that enable data-intensive and compute-intensive research supercomputers, large-scale data facilities, etc. And we are a research center in the methods and practices of how 
to effectively do data and compute intensive research, working with uh, researchers across UCL to get the best possible exploitation of new methods involving data and compute intensive ways of working uh, to accelerate discovery and innovation in, in, in all the different uh, areas of research in science and scholarship that UCL does. Now, I find this really interesting. I, literally an hour ago, I was chatting to a senior data scientist at Sky, um, and we were talking about a future podcast for this series. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in that conversation, she was talking about one thing that she really loves to talk about is um, how research can be applied to enterprise. Right. And it feels very much like this is in exactly that area where you've got academia and you're talking about the application of that research. And I know that when we previously spoke, um, you talked about the relationship between kind of craftsperson and scholar. So it does feel like it's very much in that area. Yeah. So this is so, you know, what I've always been excited about is that more and more different research domains are discovering that computers and the ways of working that we do to to bring the power of computation and data to bear on those research disciplines are are transforming our ability to to do uh, research and innovation. There really aren't any research domains that aren't going through that process of digital transformation. So um, engineers and physical scientists have been using big computers to do to do research for uh, you know multiple decades. You know, going back to, to large scale fluid dynamic simulations in, uh, and those kind of things. But we're now seeing historians making significant use of natural language processing to have AI agents read all of the books from the 19th century at once um, to do the history of the Industrial Revolution. Um, We're seeing uh, lots of interesting challenges about um, large-scale data processing in healthcare, where we're linking electronic patient records uh, together to discover uh, ways of improving, improving treatments. And actually, the protocols by which we uh, do that work with sensitive and confidential data in a robust and secure way is one of the most interesting areas we're, we're working on in in ARC. So the fact that there, you know, in every area of, of both science and arts and humanities and social sciences, uh, we're seeing the tools of IT applied to those research challenges. Uh, you know that's what arcs uh, about. That's what our excitement is. Um, it's interesting you say that's that's what arc is about because arc is is new, but it's not new. Is that fair to say? So arc is a new body, but it is the offspring that's of, right. of an organisation that has existed since you started it in 2012. Yeah, well, yes. Yeah. So in a way, that's right. So there are a few different groups that have existed around UCL, uh, one of which the research software group uh, is one that I started in 2012 uh, and has been uh, taken on by another another member of our, of our team uh, over the last few years. Um, and these groups are coming together to, to create this, this new centre. But, you know, the new centre is about the fact that uh, the, the recognition is clear that, that 
this is an exciting time to to invest and grow in this space because the 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 the, the lessons that have been learned uh, in recent years about this you know make this area obvious. So you know I've, I've been spending a lot of the last year working on. Um, using computational methods to understand the propagation of the coronavirus, like many people in, in the research space. And, you know, it's just another example of where, where we've realized that uh, this is an important moment in, in this story. But not only in terms of being able to do it at all, but in, in, in terms of being able to do it reliably in a trustworthy way, in a, uh, you know, dare I say it, auditable way, so that the the importance of, of best possible practices in the use of computer and data intensive methods in research are essential to that trustworthiness uh, which uh, science and scholarship require. Um, and actually, that's why, uh, you know, when we talk about you, you asked about the craftsperson and the scholar thing a, bit, uh, a moment or two ago, that balance of being proud of both sides of our identity we are IT professionals who are committed to getting all of that done really carefully and well so that um, the research outcomes are trustworthy. And we are uh, part of the, the academic community of UCL. Um, and that, that balance, right, proudly being both IT professionals and scientists uh, is one of the things that we, we really want to achieve within the new centre. It's interesting you talk about the research outcomes are trustworthy, and especially as as we mentioned the dreaded word coronavirus yeah. a few minutes ago. Um, if we also think about that, um, you know, kind of coming up with vaccines has come out of the academic community yeah. and and science working together. It's come out of the international community working together. And if we think about um, Arc's place, I suppose in the wider efforts of universities to try and think about how computational power can be applied to industry and so on and, and how that research can be used. You, you've got other institutions, you've got Texas, you've got Barcelona, you've got Edinburgh around the world. Do, do you find that you, you work closely with these institutions? How, how, how can you learn from each other to make sure that your group is really at that forefront? Yeah, so, so I think UCL has a long history in scientific computing. The first node of the internet outside North America was in UCL computer science. Um, so, uh, you know, we have a long pedigree here, but it's, it's fair to say that the list of global top tier scientific computing organizations wouldn't and hitherto uh, have included uh, a UCL based institution and, the journey that you know we began uh, two months ago at the beginning of August uh, to start a bark is is you know a statement of ambition that we would we would like to be included in that list as, as, as a you know as a university, um, uh, noting we're not there yet. Um, but as you rightly point out, the mission of research, the the the, the community and culture of research is collaborative and internationally collaborative. And again, that's actually one of the interesting challenges for, for us in uh, research IT in that building the frameworks for 
computationally intensive research and data intensive research such as to facilitate those kind of large scale uh, collaborations uh, you know remote collaborations we've all been working from home over the last uh, couple of years um but remote collaborations where we're doing data science with sensitive data in a in a secure environment right those are um uh, fascinating challenges that bring together both our understanding as as as, as data scientists and software engineers uh, with being part of the academic collaborative community now um when we look at the area that you're working and you're dealing with data, you're dealing with software, you're dealing with computers, you're dealing with people. Um, people is an interesting challenge and maybe we should park that for a moment, but data and software and computers, where, where is, where is the emphasis of time spent? I would imagine data. I mean, so much data is being created now, how to house it, how to house it sustainably, what to do with it. Perhaps that's where the focus is uh, around the work that you're doing and the amount of data that you'll need for, for computational science must be absolutely vast. I'm just wondering kind of where the emphasis of, of, of the group kind of sits. So in order to deliver on digital transformation, we need to keep all of those in balance. And as soon as you find that you've you've uh, taken your foot off the pedal on one of them, it becomes the, the blocker. So for example, um, we work with large scale digital collections. And if we've built the capability to house and manage and store and discover and share that data, but not to analyze it in bulk, then we can't exploit it uh, in the ways we, we want. We can't generate insight from it. Um, if we don't look after the software engineering practices around the way we build the analysis scripts and the programs that that generate that insight, uh, then you know, we can either be wasting compute power by not having the most efficient software, uh, which is uh, that we could, or even worse, uh, making unreliable conclusions um, as a result of... Uh, um, uh, not having gone through proper testing practices and quality assurance practices around the software. Um, and if we've got the data and we've managed to store it, but we can't dis can't search it, we can't discover it, we can't organize it, we can't curate it, then uh, there's no point having uh, uh, the data at all. Um, if we can't protect it uh, so that we can work with uh, data, which might be, you know, quite personal data to individuals involved in, in health research, for example. We need to be able to protect that so in a, such a way that, you know, we've still got that fluent, curiosity-driven uh, scientific productivity without compromising a jot on uh, the ability to defend and secure that data and maintain it, uh, its, uh, its integrity. So all of them in balance, um, the challenges around uh, each of them feeds into the other. Um, that's kind of my my sort of perspective on on why why we, when we talk about data computers and software we talk about them together. Now you, you did mention, as I said, we we had a chat before we hit record here, and kind of not going to hide that from the audience. But you mentioned that there were some challenges around around people. You just mentioned the word curiosity there. I also think it's quite interesting that when you get into um, kind of the I suppose the slight cultural differences between people in academia and people who've left academia and gone into enterprise and kind of mm -hmm. how they view each other, there can be a slight disconnect there, but you're kind of straddling both. So I'd imagine this is this is quite a happy place for people who want to have both the craftsperson and the scholar hat, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, um, the 
one of the key things we're doing with ARC is trying to create a place inside university structures for these kinds of digital research professionals that creates a fulfilling, sustainable, uh, uh, energized career. Um, so uh, what does it mean to be a data scientist in a university? What does it mean to be a software working in research in a university? What does it mean to be a data steward or an informatician uh, as, you know, working as part of these research teams? Rather than a sort of traditional uh, uh, master and apprentice almost model of a sort of academic career structure that uh, um, uh, is normally used. And, you know, what we find is that a lot of the people we 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 have within the teams that are already coming together to form ARC before we do this big recruitment drive, um, uh, what we find is that it's often people who've gone through the starting stages of an academic career, uh, a PhD, perhaps, uh, some postdocing, perhaps, um, and then decided that it's the uh, it's the digital technology, it's the IT, it's the software, it's the data bits that they're excited about as much as anything else. Sometimes uh, people like me have, uh, you know, done a, a few turns of the academic career and then perhaps focused on producing software rather than research outputs, rather than research papers, and gone off to industry. That's what happened to me. Uh, and it was while working for MathWorks, people that make MATLAB, um, that I sort of learned what good industry software engineering practices look like before I came back to academia. Um, and so you know, that place within academic culture for uh, this intermediate role, that's that's what ARC will, uh, you know, that's a big part of our sort of offering within within uh, within the space and, and our ability to create these staff scientist roles focused on the IT aspects of research um, is, you know, I think uh, going to be an attractive uh offer for, um, for for this slightly unusual, but actually more common today than it ever has been before profile within, within the research community. Because we can't build the research teams that make all of this, this work possible without all these different sets of skills. So, you know, the, the, the traditional imagined model of the lone nerd in a basement doing science uh thing isn't just isn't the way that digital research uh you know works now we have multidisciplinary teams where uh you know our our domain scientists be they uh chemists or historians or social scientists or or architects but our domain researchers are building research teams that include the research technology professionals that are um that are, that are what art brings to the story. Um, last question, okay. Uh, you talked there a little bit about being attractive and, and you could hear the passion there kind of when you were talking. Um, you also mentioned earlier on about healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, if you're going to be attractive, I suppose this, is, this has got to be kind of a destination that people really do get excited about and, and also share that passion for. There are a few other kind of competing research bodies um, in and around London. Um, yes. some of them with pretty deep pockets yes so how do you how do you kind of how do you try to position arc to those people to make sure that you can capture them um even if you don't have quite the same level of, of resource perhaps as some of those other um bodies yeah so I mean, look we do we're doing better than we were right 
but we uh, we are not uh, you know Facebook research. We are not uh, Google DeepMind. We are we're you know public sector institution. Uh, you know, we're a charity working for public good. We're uh, we're also um, keen to see the research we do have have real world impact um, and be sustained. Um, you know, the, the university is the original example of the social enterprise. Um, and, uh, you know, that's uh, so that's one aspect of this that I think is exciting and um, uh, brings a different balance to the nature of the, the work that we do. Um, the breadth of challenges and problems that our teams get to engage with um, you know, our, our, our um, UCL supercomputers are being used, as I say, to support all, all kinds of different um, research uh, fields. Uh, and, you know, when our teams are working with those research fields as, as consultants to help them help them use those tools and to, and to, and to uh, deliver this kind of work, the, that breadth of curiosity, the excuse to learn about Lots of different kinds of interesting research fields is, is for me another part of of, uh, of our offer. You know, I um, uh, I've talked about these as uh, uh, these roles as uh, you get to read research papers and then write code. I mean, I can't think of a better job. Um, but uh, uh, so 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 that's that's kind of one part of that. And then I think um, you know the overall environment of being part of uh, one of the world's top 10 universities is itself, uh, you know, just an exciting thing to be part of. And I'm so delighted that, you know, the students back on campus uh, this week, and it, you know, that feels post COVID really like being a university again. And actually the teaching and training aspects of this, not everybody involved in the department will want to, you know, engage with, 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 with undergrads, but for those of us that do, teaching future generations of researchers how best to uh, use digital methods is another interesting part of, uh, of, of the rewards of, of working with us, I think. Well, look, I, I'm super glad to hear that it feels like a university again. Uh, long may that continue. And Indeed. James, thank you very, very much for your time this afternoon. Right, Keish, how much easier would history have been if you'd had a tool that could have allowed you to read all of your textbooks at once. Never mind all of the books from the 19th century. Um, I was thinking it's not just history. My whole schooling life would be easier. But all of education, to be fair. Like, you know, I, yeah, I just think it would be blimmin' amazing. Very, very good. Um, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy that... that we now have the ability to crunch that much data. I mean, maybe I shouldn't be amazed. I know that there are huge databases and we can crunch them. But yeah. like when we talk, we I, I think we talk in technology in quite abstract terms and someone comes along and they go, you know, here's how technology can be applied to the arts or the humanities. And historians are using natural language processing, again, to read all of the books from the 19th century at once. That's mental. It's ridiculous, isn't it? And and also the fact that people think, it, do, do you know what? It, it saves so much time, and I think and I think those that are, you know, historians or, or linguists or writers, novelists, these sorts of things, it just gives them a lot more time. Or or anyone in academia, really, it just gives them a lot more time to come in and, you know, kind of see. Um, or, or, or write more or do more or respond and 
do more research because all those hours imagine right reading these books and texts you can you can do them so so much more quicker and efficiently it does it does beg kind of question of what's possible when um you put together this kind of craftsperson and scholar kind of idea mm. of you know it professionals who are committed to delivering trustworthy research and they're part of the academic community kind of there's there's that mention um in the interview about uh healthcare and james says that healthcare is where he thinks some of their most interesting research is being done and and you just you think to yourself yeah uh, if they can really make sure that it is secure and that it's trustworthy the value that can be unlocked by the ability to crunch data at that scale is, is incredible mm. i think at the moment if we all these kind of texts or research and medical results and all that sort of thing if that can all be driven by data and condensed in a way that you know kind of um, scientists are able to see trends read certain things well, did, you, did, you read, did you read a little while ago that they'd managed to come up with a new antibiotic but it was machine learning that had come up with the antibiotic obviously we're always worried about the fact that you know we give out antibiotics too easily therefore our, mm. their, their effectiveness is waning by crunching data, yeah. they've, they'd come up with a new antibiotic. And yeah. that's where you kind of go, wow, okay, this has got real relevance and real practical implications to people's lives. I thought it was really good that he, he talks about the fact, though, that we might be able to store it, um, you know, but you can't analyze it in bulk. Sorry, you have to be aware that you, you might be able to analyze it, but you can't waste computer power. You've got to have the right software. You've got to have the right testing. And I thought that was quite interesting because later on in the interview, he talks about people who'd perhaps started with a PhD, uh, started an academic career, but decided that they um, were excited by software and had gone into industry where they'd learned what good software looks like. And I think it's important to remember that blended approach. Whilst he talks about creating, you know, through ARC, um, a place inside the university structure where you can have a fulfilling career, mm. it's really important to have the diversity of ideas in any organization because, you know, you could have the ability to store all this data but not know what software you should be using to extract the right value from it. Yeah, and, and I think it's all about kind of, uh, what's, what's the age-old saying? Like, you know, data is only as good as the, the person who's kind of putting it in or loading it or, you know, um, whatever that saying is, you know, you don't know. Snappy saying. A snappy saying, yeah. That's a snappy saying. I don't, but I don't, I don't know. Bias in, yeah. bias out. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I think I, th I think just having that large amount of data and, and just the capacity and the capability to do it, I think, is 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 unbelievable. And, and yeah. honestly, I think... I, I'm, it's generally scary it generally is when you think about if we're doing this now what can be achieved in the next two years five years mm -hmm. time um and I, I just think it's pretty exciting to see that in our lifetime we'll be able to see some pretty groundbreaking things that our parents and their parents you know just never kind of saw because of the data ai and how technology can work um to help influence life and, 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 you know, daily people's lives rather than. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? What, what the, the, the undercurrent of all of this is practical application and outcomes, mm. trustworthy outcomes, but outcomes where you can, where you can put this compute power 
to work for people to deliver um, outcomes that yeah. really improve improve society, improve improve people's lives. Yeah. You know, it might be that we're relying on, unfortunately, on technology to come up with an answer to the climate crisis because we've gone too far and we need to fix it. It's never mind preventing it, it's mm. fixing it. And we might be looking at stuff like that in the future. We might need really to turn to technology in a big way to solve some of the world's biggest problems. Um, so these kind of centers and these kind of academic minds coming together uh, and using tech is is something that should be lauded and, and protected and, and invested in. 100%, 100%. We're going to take a quick advert. Uh, it sounds like someone's smashing stuff in the kitchen where Akish is. Uh, yeah. Loving it, loving it. Uh, and we'll come back with a quick chat about the Tech Women 100. A couple of years ago, Michael and Jacob, two friends from London, were both thinking about their consumption and sustainability as a whole. Michael, a professional footballer at the time, realised he had no options when it came to sustainable sportswear. Overconsumption and underuse was all too common. Hilo was born, a sportswear brand fighting for the planet by changing mindsets. They've started with a running shoe made with seven natural materials, and the shoe can be recycled at the end of its life. As a company, they've offset their carbon to beyond zero, making them carbon negative. You can find out more about Hilo and support their mission at hiloathletics.com. That's H-Y-L-O. We support the Hilo movement. Right, Tech Women 100. Uh, why are we going on about this? Every year, the we, we Are The City announce their Tech Women 100. I think it's now in its sixth or seventh year. Uh, if you're listening, v- Vanessa, uh, Vanessa, who who runs We Are The City, uh, apologies if I got that slightly wrong. Um, but yes, Goldman Sachs uh, uh, headline sponsor. So on behalf of Goldman Sachs and our supporting sponsors, we would like to extend our sincere thanks to everyone who nominated this year's awards. We'd like to personally thank all the judges thank you, uh, who gave their valuable time to assemble our shortlist. And then if you head over to wearetechwomen.com forward slash techwomen100 hyphen awards, hyphen full, hyphen shortlist, hyphen 2021 forward slash, because that was the snappiest thing that anyone could ever say on a podcast, um, you will see all of the amazing people up for an award. And quite frankly there are some astonishing people in there um so we just want to basically draw as many eyes as we can um to to what they're doing pick up the females (laughs) (laughs) mate after after you gave that massive spill including email address including instructions that's what you had to offer mate where, where where do i go with that where do i go with that pick up the females (laughs) <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, yeah, all right. I agree with the sentiment, even if it's clunky yeah, at yeah. best. Um, yeah, and look, just to to pull out one or two, um, because I'm being totally self-serving here. Uh Amandine Flax, Wild Meta. Um Amandine uh basically again, if you click on the profile, right, the, the level of traffic on the website right now, you are now in a line. Thanks for your patience. Your estimated wait time is one minute. Just to have a look at Amandine's profile. Pretty cool that there's that much interest. Uh, but she's on our next series of In Conversation With. She came into the office a couple of weeks ago to record an interview with me. So uh, we're going to be able to feature um, some of these amazing shortlisted women and some of the judges uh, with our audience in video format over the next few weeks, which is pretty cool too. Very, very good. That is. Are you I'm, trying, are you I'm trying on to get... the website. Yeah, I'm on the. I'm trying to get on the website now. I've got a two minute hold. Hold. Yeah. Delay. Yeah, I'm not kidding. I'm not making yeah. it up. There is serious demand there. It's like um, it's it's like queuing up for like tickets to a gig or something. You know, when you're like, 
for like new trainers. What what I love about this list, right, is if you get onto that list and you have a look through the faces of the women there, um, absolutely, we can't be ageist, right? Mm. We want to see people up both ends of the scale, people with experience and people new to the industry. But what we do know is that when it comes to the pipeline issue, actually um, role models uh, that, that, that girls in education, and I say girls because I mean kind of 14, 15, 16-year-olds who will look to industry and will look to people to go, that's my inspiration. Unfortunately, it's not the 40s, 50s, 60-year-olds who are doing incredible things. They're oh. not the inspiring figures. They are the people who are maybe five or 10 years older than them that they can identify with. Oh. And when you look through this list, there are countless examples of people that are wonderful young role models, hopefully to that next generation coming through. And I really hope that we can shine a light a little bit on it. And look, this is a podcast, right? There are some younger listeners to it. I don't know how young, um, but if there are any girls who are currently studying in full-time education and you want some inspiration, you will find it on that page. Yeah, it's very, very good. I'm, 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 I'm on there now. Uh, yeah, very, very good. Like, real good list. And also, cross in, can we say cross-industry? Is that fair? Is that, is that oh, yeah. It's people, yeah. There's people in military. There's yeah. people in, in social enterprise. There's people in... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Very, very good. This. All backgrounds, ethnicities, you know, nationalities. Yeah, like I said, different range of ages as well. It's mm. just, it shows just how vibrant and diverse the industry really is. Mm. But sometimes that gets obscured. Yeah. And and some serious, um, serious technology talent. And so good to see it in, in the form of females. Um, so have that, you old farts of the city that think what grey haired grey haired middle aged men like me grey haired middle aged white men no I'm joking <laughs> it's, it's a call to allyship if yeah. you want to be relevant That's then you've got to get you got to get on, on side with it with everyone there we go right Akish thank you for your time no problem we'll be back on Friday <laughs>